Good morning, everyone. Let's grab our seats. So good to see all of you. How are you guys doing? I'm Josh. I'm teaching pastor here. I'm glad that you guys are here uh, with us today. I don't know why, but that friends giving phrase just makes me snicker. Because I immediately, because I'm a bad person, immediately thought about all the friends in my history that I was been happy to give to someone else. And then I'm like, I'm a horrible person. Um, which is why grace is so good. Uh, I know that many people who have called me friend would love to give me um, to other people. Uh, so, uh, friendsgiving. Well, much to be thankful for. Uh, and I do pray that this week... Why are the holidays for so many people such a stressful time? Like we look forward to them. This always happens to Darcy and I. We like can't wait for Christmas and then we can't wait for it to be over. It's weird. Uh, and I, I think that it's because like everything, it's mixture. And a lot of times we're confronted with difficult family. We're confronted with uh, painful memories of things that holidays also can be reminders of things that are really challenging, like we've lost someone that we love that we're not going to be with this year. Um, and we just want you to know that this is the whole reason. Uh, one of the big reasons we're doing Psalm 119 is, is a way to remind us that the significant thing is being a part of the family of God is that every day the mercies of Jesus are new. And we need to be reminded that more than ever uh, during the very time when which we're supposed to be celebrating God's infiltration into this world through the sending of his son, through the incarnation. Um, and so this is a great way for you guys to come and, and be a community together um, in a month that can actually be quite challenging uh, for many of us. And so uh, I just want to encourage you. Um, uh, yeah, you, you don't have to come to every day and like, it's okay if you sin and that's why grace is important. <laughs> you can't work your way to heaven, but you can disappoint God. No, I'm just <laughs> I should say you can disappoint your pastor. Like it'll be so lonely if you don't come. It actually wouldn't be worth doing if you didn't come. Um, Cause I need you to make me do the same thing I'm asking you to do, which is why we do it together. Um, hey, we're gonna continue in our series uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. And we're moving into uh, some difficult passages. Last week was, was a challenging passage. And I wanna just continue to remind you that the importance of the Sermon on the Mount, if we want to avoid the pitfalls of turning the Sermon on the Mount into a new ladder to climb, which is the very thing that the gospel has come to set us free from. The world is providing us endless paths to fulfillment, to what my friend David Zoll calls our pursuit of enoughness, our desire to be all that we can be, to be our best selves. And there are a million ways uh, to, to approach that impossible task. What the gospel provides, which is so different, and this is why I always cringe when people say, I, I didn't know you were religious. I'm like, I always want to say, I'm not religious. I, I'm relational because I'm made in the image of a relational God. And religion is man's attempt to reach God in his own effort. But faith in Jesus is faith in a God who has come down to meet us in our brokenness. And the Sermon on the Mount is no exception. It is the ethics of the kingdom of the king, and Jesus is that king, and he is both the judge and the judged in our place. And if we do not look at 
the Sermon on the Mount through the lens of the cross, through the gospel, we will immediately be confronted with an impossible law that actually isn't Jesus lightening the load of the, of the law, but actually doubling down on it and expanding it and amplifying it to the point where no one is left with anywhere to turn. Okay, I'm not a murderer. Well, if you're angry with your brother or sister, you're a murderer. Dang it. That seems a little extreme. It is extreme. Because the heart of the problem is always the problem of the heart. I want to just give you two phrases that are just good to be reminded of, or two words, mercy and grace. And I think when we think of mercy, mercy is not receiving what we deserve, which is judgment. It is God's mercy. It is his nature to be merciful. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. Grace is the other word that is so important for us, and that is receiving something we don't deserve, which is love without contingency. And if we don't look at these passages through the lens of mercy and grace, we will come to a place of despair. And, the, and I would argue the Sermon on the Mount is not meant to bring us to a place of despair. It's not meant to just show us that we're helpless, that we're hopeless, but it's saying you should have hope because in your helplessness, I have come to help you. And this is why Jesus, he may double down and make the verdict more extreme, but the answer, the solution is more beautiful than you can even imagine. And this is why I think it's so important for us to dismantle um, the, what I would refer to as an anthropology that points us toward um, humans, humanism is essentially the worship of the individual. It is, the, it, is a, it is an expanded and an outrageous view of the human condition that we are essentially good and that th there is untapped potential and if we do these things, you can unlock that potential. This is why the self-help industry is a $6.5 billion industry in the world. Everybody wants to be different and the same. Everybody wants to be more, um, a more uh, improved, a, a more perfect version of themselves. And there is a frustration in the human experience. This is why it says that God has placed eternity in the hearts of man, but we don't know how to unlock it. We don't understand it. The longing that we, that we desire I would say that Christians have the answer to that longing, which is we have come into contact with the living God who says, in spite of your brokenness, I have sent my son. I love you. I will meet you in your sin, but I'm also not content to leave you there. And what a beautiful thing. My dear friend David Zoll just wrote a book called Low Anthropology, and I, I would highly encourage um, picking it up. It's a brilliant book that explores what freedom comes when we understand that we are fundamentally broken because it's what gives the gospel such beauty it's what makes us turn to the gospel is when we recognize we need help but that is not a bad thing and actually the slavery that comes from believing the lie that your best self is possible um, through your own efforts that's that's actually the enslaving idea that is so popular in our secular age. So I want to just begin with this quote from Dale Bruner. Um, I, I love this. And, and, and the title of today's message, I should have titled last week's message the same, Disciples are Forgiven Murderers. Disciples are also Forgiven Adulterers. 
Dale Bruner said, the commands of Jesus are the best evangelists because like few preachers, they show us that without the forgiving help of Jesus Christ, we are lost. The Beatitudes first pick us up and then move us out, but the commands first knock us down in order that we seek to be picked up and moved on. The commands are fitted perfectly to the Beatitudes. What a powerful statement. I think that it's important for us to think about the words of Jesus. And one thing I want to just point out that's really important is the use of his phrase, but I tell you, you have heard it said that it was written. One of the, one of the key arguments, uh, apologetics, is defending the deity of Christ. The idea that Jesus isn't just one sent by God. He's not a prophet uh, in the sense, the prophet said, thus saith the Lord. Jesus always would say, but I tell you, which is saying that he is the ultimate prophet, but he is also the very word of the prophet himself. He is communicating himself, essentially is what I'm saying. And he, in saying, but I tell you, is doing something that is radical. Uh, And the reason that he was ultimately put to death is that he is putting himself uh, he's not putting himself on, the, on the, the, the level of being the ultimate interpreter of the law. He is putting himself on the same playing field as the lawgiver himself. He is speaking with an authority, and he does not justify that authority. He doesn't say, but I tell you because I heard this, or but I tell you because God told me directly. He is just simply saying, I am speaking this to you as not only an authority on the law, but as the one who created it. (laughs) And this is a fascinating thing that should not go unnoticed. And what he is doing is not trying to uh, reinterpret the commands. What he's doing them is deepening them. He's deepening them. He's deepening our understanding of them. That he has shown us that we are murderers, that we are adulterers because of disordered love and our exalted selves. And our victory lies in the acceptance of the fact and our willingness to do something about it. We will never make a situation right if we didn't know it was wrong to begin with. And this is why the law, he says, if I had not known the law, I would not have known what sin is, Paul writes. And what he is saying is that the law is not capable of saving. It's a plumb line from heaven. All it does is show you how not straight the wall is it's meant to show us the crookedness of our very lives and so we need help and Jesus is offering us help as fully as he is showing us the seriousness of sin so I want to just move into a very difficult conversation and this is the just so you know we taught through Matthew before and there were some of you that were here but the issue, this particular text, we did a, we did a message, actually it was in Matthew 19, um, and, it, and it was around the, the very convoluted and complicated and deeply debated question around marriage and divorce and remarriage. And man, I just want you to know, I am here to teach the Sermon on the Mount, and I want to say that if the guys... And gals that I love to read and listen to aren't in agreement on this, even people within the same camp. If you look at the Reformed world alone and you look at multiple interpreters of marriage, remarriage, uh, divorce, you'll find that they all have different views. 
John MacArthur, John Piper, and Mark Dever, three of the biggest reform guys in America, all have different views on the, on the question of marriage, remarriage, and divorce. So you can pick your favorite, but I don't think the purpose of this text is Jesus isn't trying to tell us when we can get divorced and when we can get remarried. That's not the purpose. I think what he is saying is that covenants matter to God, that divorce always leads to heartbreak. And that's not God's best for us. But he also is saying in the same breath, and let us be very clear, because I think people try to turn it into this, well, if she committed adultery, then I'm free to leave her and remarry. Or if he committed adultery, but then it says sexual immorality. So now we have it. Well, what is sexual immorality? Is it adultery? Well, it could be pornography, right? So my husband struggles with pornography. Well, I can clearly divorce him because he's not faithful. No, all of us will struggle with faithfulness in various ways. I love when Jake Johnson came and did the marriage seminar uh, probably a year ago, and he, he had a point, and I remember it like offending a lot of, I could see it, people bristle. He says, one of the facts of marriage is that you are all adulterers. And he said, he said listen, you may, not be he goes, you may not be having an affair with another person, he goes, but I'm really good at having an affair with myself. And I was like, dang, that's so good. Um, and that's, that's the thing, it's disordered love. It's the refusal to surrender. It's, we can, we can be adulterous. If, adulterous, if adultery is, is actually elevating something else over, like what violates the marriage? I mean, there can be a million things that violate the marriage. The question is, is will you function in mercy? Will you function in grace? Will you continue to follow the, the, the ultimate passage on love? Love believes all things, hopes all things. That doesn't mean that every marriage will survive. And it doesn't, mean, it doesn't mean that any person, because of this statement, you take certain stances and all of a sudden you take, if you take the stance of some commentators that say that a person can only get remarried if their spouse dies, then what they're essentially saying is that a person who is remarried sitting in the pew, listening to them preach, is that that person is in a constant state of adultery. And all of a sudden, it's moved into this category of almost unforgivable sin. But I think Jesus is trying to tell us we are all adulterers. But that doesn't mean that we should live in a state of despair. It means that we should be quick to recognize the waywardness of our hearts and quickly turn back to the one who can help, Jesus. And I get so frustrated at the legalism in the church and the ways that the, the selective sanctification. It's like, wives should submit to their husbands. I'm like, well, it says husbands should love their wives. Does that mean that uh, wives don't have to love their husbands? So why, how, why, I don't understand how we, we make all these things kind of one-sided. Or, uh, I do not permit a woman to teach. And right before that it says, and I command that all men pray with their hands raised. So that isn't relevant but this is relevant you see how selective it can become how quickly we become uh, quick to define we want to define the terms this is the whole that was the whole issue with the law to begin with look at how the jewish law became so twisted is that god gives generalities and the rabbis began to develop they started to fill in the blanks. So that by the time that Jesus was on the scene, the laws had expanded into hundreds and hundreds of extra things like keep the Sabbath. Well, we don't know what that means. So 
Now you go to Israel, you have like, you have, you have elevators that are like Sabbath appropriate, so you're not actually doing work. I, I don't even understand that. But this is the reality. That's not just like some sort of Jewish thing. This is a human behavior thing. We always want to fill in the blanks. We are not comfortable with um, mystery, and we, and we love people to tell us what to do. But we also hate it because we're messed up. So this is, the, this is the reality. So I just want to be, this, it's a disclaimer on the front end. I have opinions on these things, but where there has been debate around non-essential issues, and I think that marriage is an essential, an essential thing that's a part of God's intended good creation. The man shall leave, his mother and father be united with his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I'm not downplaying sexuality, I'm not downplaying the covenant of marriage, but I am saying that there is a lot of room for interpretation and nuance around the application and anything that violates grace or puts someone out of reach of God's mercy, I think is an unacceptable interpretation. Does that make sense? Okay, and if you have questions, I'm not filling in every gap for you because I'm just a, I'm, I'm a um, lowbrow renaissance man. I just, I'm a, I'm a pretend philosopher and theologian. I didn't even get to college. So don't, you don't have to trust anything I say, but you're here, aren't you? Um, the universal problem, let's begin. Matthew 5, verses 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone that looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now Jesus here is, follows the, the exposition of the Decalogue's commandment, and that's the Ten Commandments, um, against killing. You shall not murder, which means that he is a protector of life. This is important. But he also makes a commandment against adultery, which is a protection of marriage. And I think it's important for us to understand that. And, and here he says, as the one who speaks with the authority of God himself, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Um, does anyone here have the ESV, reading the ESV? Uh, and some, you're like, no, I'm just reading what you have on the screen behind you, and I understand. Um, this is the NIV. Uh, translation. So let me give you an example. In the New King James, and it goes all the way back to the second century, actually, there was attempts once again to bring clarity to the words of Jesus by amplifying what was actually in the text. And this is a problem. So in the New King James, it still says, whoever is angry with his brother without, it's like Whoever's angry um, without reason. Uh, there, so what does that do? That just basically nullifies, there's always a reason for you being angry. Always. So now you don't have to feel bad. because Well, I'm, they were mean. So you have a reason. Therefore, this, this commandment is not for you. The ESV, I think, does the same thing with the passage on lust. It says, whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent. Intent is not there. It's not there. It's an attempt to bring clarity to a word that is broad. And Jesus intended it to be broad because he does not want you to feel comfortable with this statement. Lust is the inappropriate desire. It's taking that which is good and trying to make it yours at the wrong time in the wrong way. 
the desire, God created us to be attracted. And isn't it hard? Well, like, how do you define what is lust? I go to an art museum and I look at a painting of Botticelli, which is generally naked women dancing in forests somewhere. I mean, that's generally, I feel like that's like, not Botticelli, I'm sorry, a Rubin. Um, Botticelli has Venus coming out of the beautiful painting, and she's beautiful. It's a beautiful painting. The admiration of beauty of the human form is natural. It's a God-given natural thing. It's why it's attraction and how we come together with people. Generally, we are attracted to people, and the attraction actually may even uh, come before the even knowing of the person, personality, and it may be the very thing that causes you to talk to the person. Uh, and so this is, this is something that is, this is a natural thing that God gives, but, but the nuances of when does that attraction become inappropriate? And I would say that varies with people too. Like for me, I'll give you an example. My love language is touch. So when I was a kid, for me to go to, go to uh, the one thing I loved about church, uh, youth group, when I was young, was to get to go to church camp. Now, I was not, I didn't even understand grace. I never understood the gospel. I was the bad kid in youth group that took drugs on youth trips um, because it made them more bearable. And I, I remember, for me, camp, like, yes, I had this weird stirring that Jesus is somebody, but all I really wanted to do was to hold the girl that I thought was cute hand at the campfire at the end and maybe maybe even get an inappropriate kiss. This was my desire. Now for me, holding a hand was something that would send my mind, it would explode my, like just the sitting next to someone that I found attractive, just them touching me was enough to be like, oh my gosh, this is crazy, it's happening, she likes me. Like, she just is sitting by you. I hey, say what you want. I know how to read the signs. You know, this, I, my, but some people, like my son, would never think anything of that. He'll, he just wouldn't even, he wouldn't even contemplate that. It, and, and I think that everybody's different. And what Jesus is doing is he is utilizing a word to show us that all of us have disordered desires. And, and here's the thing. Let me just say, in a hyper-secular age, secularism has led to a ever deepening and more extreme versions of hypersexuality. It's a massive component of the age in which we live. Uh, there, are, there are whole movements right now of this kind of, this rethinking of what is appropriate for people to wear and women saying, we have the right to dress however we want to dress. Um, and guys, and, and it's like, it, we have to just live with this kind of hyper, we, we're hypersexual and we want to project sexuality, but we don't want people to misinterpret that sexuality. But we're playing against human nature in the ways, and I'm not here to talk about what is appropriate and what isn't appropriate. We talked about this in First Peter. I think that every age, 100 years ago, it was inappropriate for a woman to show her ankles. Look at swimsuits. Why did women wear full covering swimsuits, but guys seem to wear really inappropriate swimsuits back in the, they're, they're way too tight and overly revealing. It's like old men wearing Speedos in Florida. It's upsetting on, on a, so many levels. I don't care how fit you are, it's always wrong. 
Um, and if you're like, I wear Speedos, it's wrong, and you should repent. Because <laughs> you're not causing people to lust, you're upsetting people. You're actually causing them to be angry. And anger means that you're a murderer. And so if you wear a Speedo, you just turned me into a murderer. You didn't make me have a desire for what you have. You made me have a desire to put you in the sand. Um, and so I think that this is the, the reality. I, I was joking. I'm like, I don't think the male figure naked, naked is actually possible of creating lust. It only creates anger. <laughs> universally believe that the woman figure creates lust, not so for men. And so, but listen, guys, you show too much, you're just making people angry. Um, I even get angry when fit guys run down Hawthorne in just their running shorts, because I'm like, why? Why are you doing that? Put a shirt on. Who cares? It's all going, it's all going south. This is just my bitterness of aging and my lust, like so many of yours, for youth. A worship of youth. If you want to know how much lust controls our modern age, look at the, um, look at the money that is spent in, uh, in surgery. More and more people are doing things to their body, unnatural things to their body to maintain something. Even young people now, the amount of people getting injections into their lips, removing lines from their foreheads. I mean, we'll, we'll pump plastic into our bodies to create the false idea of what is beautiful, what is sexy. It's problematic because it diminishes our humanity and it, and it puts the essence of the human being on, we are physical beings, but we are so much more than that. And I think that what the secular age has done is diminished the interior beauty of someone and overexalted a particular, um, a particular kind of beauty that usually stays in vogue for about five years. And in, in today's world, now about a year before. Now, the new one right now is shave your eyebrows off is super, I guess, sexy. I think it is alarming and it always reminds me of Marilyn Manson. I don't care what m model has it. Um, and I, I think these are the, this is the problem. I'm not here to define for you what lust is other than it is this. It is, the, it is an inappropriate desire for something that is not yours to take. And that can be literally through the way that we stare. So people try to miss this out. Well, it's the second look that's the sin. I don't know. For some of you, it was the first look. Some of you, what if you're blind? How does lust apply to you? It's, this isn't the point. The point is, is that is that there is something fundamentally broken in us that pushes us to extremes and dehumanizes us and, and causes us to forget that we are created as image bearers of a God who has called us to love and serve one another, not try to own and possess one another. That sexuality is a gift from God. Sex is a gift from God, but hypersexualization is the diminishment of that sacred gift into something that's just mere animal impulse. And we live in a time now where, think about the conversations around, I, I just was talking actually with someone who uh, had shared many times about one of his close friends being in a polyamorous relationship. But over time, that polyamorous relationship led to the guy falling very deeply in love with the girl and not wanting that anymore and they didn't talk about it but then she jumped immediately into another polyamorous relationship breaking his heart because 
our hearts, I mean, one person is enough for anyone, right? I mean, Darcy, would you want to be married to two of me? No, she barely wants to be married to one of me. And this is, this is a reality. This is the brokenness in ourselves. This is why marriage is actually so hard, which we'll get to, because marriage is the constant, it's the putting into proximity with another person where we are allowed to be exposed, where we should be able to be ourselves, but also ourselves, that means the hard part of ourselves as well. And they're con- it's like, it ends up being, if you spend enough time, 25 years for Darts and I, who are very intense people, that, that I am more aware of my fundamental brokenness because of my wife's graciousness to, to speak truth into my life. But, you, but that's not easy. And it, and it creates conflict. And that's why Keller said it right when he said marriage is impossible. All marriages will experience conflict. Now, I know some marriages that there's very little conflict, but that probably speaks more to temperament than the universal reality that lust is going to be at play. That, <laughs> there's a joke I told Darcy. She goes, you be careful about what you say about me so I don't have to get angry. But we're watching the most popular show on television. What is it? We're in Portland. Nobody knows. Because you're like, I'm not going to watch that. It's about the Midwest. Uh, it... It's, it's actually Yellowstone. It's the most popular show on television. Russ, you're the one who told me about it. It's good. It's really good. We binged it. We watched the whole thing in like two weeks, all five, four seasons, which is a confession right now that I was spending more hours than I had to. But <laughs> we had book club and Darcy made a joke. I, I go, Darcy loves it too. You guys should watch it. And she's like, I don't know if it's good for our marriage. And what she meant by that is that there is a romanticizing of the of the, the, the sheer masculinity and the coolness of the cowboys. And so I already ordered some cowboy boots. I'm going to wear, I got, I got a hat. I just ordered some chaps. <laughs> I bought a horse, honey, last night on Amazon. <laughs> it's, a, it's one of those kids ones that you blow up, but I feel like we got to start somewhere. <laughs> I've been trying to say yeehaw. It, none of it's working. We all, we all can romanticize a different situation than we're in. We can all be at a difficult time in our marriage and wish we were with someone else. These are realities, and Jesus understands that. And I think the point here is to expose the adulterous heart so that he can actually begin to offer some sort of semblance of help. This is meant to drive us back to that first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. I like what uh, Martin Luther says. He says, good, strong faith is a great help and more noticeably so than in almost any other work. Where a man has faith like this, the spirit tells him in no uncertain way how to avoid evil thoughts and everything that opposes chastity. For just as the certainty of God's favor toward us never ceases to live and be active in us, so too that certainty never ceases to warn us in those matters pleasing or displeasing to God. What is one of the Beatitudes? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Sexual immorality blinds us just like unchecked anger blinds us to the reality of God. If we do not deal with our anger, it says, do not let the sun go down on your wrath and give a foothold to the devil. When the devil gets a foothold in our lives, 
with, uh, with unconfessed sin, it blinds us of God's presence. It hides God's from, from our senses. The point of these is to lead us to a continual state of repentance. Our freedom actually comes in our willingness to acknowledge that without Jesus we are lost. And I'm not diminishing, the reality is, is that many passages on holiness are always also connected to the issue of sexual immorality, which has continued to be a problem in the world since the fall. Because sex is powerful. It's powerful. It's, an, it's a powerful economy. <laughs> it, is, it is a powerful tool of the devil utilizing something that God intended for good and warping it in a way that brings death and destruction to lives. So let us look at the urgent call to action. This is a very profound, and, and this is why it frustrates me that people get um, overly prescriptive about the passage around marriage, divorce, and remarriage, but, but then will ignore this statement. If your right eye causes you to stumble and gouge it out, then throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. What is Jesus' meaning here? Exactly what he says. And the fact that you guys have eyes and hands tells me you're not doing what he's saying. No. The point is, is that this is serious. That if you have a disease that it may require the removal of a part of your body to save your life. And Jesus is saying here, these things are not to be taken lightly. I am telling you that this is a universal problem, but he isn't saying so that you can be in despair. No, he's saying, I am the healing solution for the sickness. And you should take immediate, once you realize that this is a problem, you will be aware of it. it this is why Alcoholics Anonymous works. This is why they continue to say, I am, my name's so-and-so and I am an alcoholic. It's their freedom from their alcohol is their acknowledgement that they would be lost in that same issue without the help of those that, that, that they've entrusted themselves to within that circle where we are not here to judge you. We are here to encourage you toward a life that is sober because we ourselves understand how controlling this reality is what intense disease alcoholism is, but there is the possibility of freedom when there is help. It's a very biblical principle. And what Jesus is calling us to is acknowledge the reality of your adultery is actually the key to you beginning to find power over it. The adulterous heart, the lustful heart, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, we begin to find power over those things when we realize that we are helpless to combat them without trusting Jesus with our whole lives. And so the, the point is, is that, is that this, should, this requires decisive action. If you want to live in a place of despair, I, I see this all the time. People that get trapped in cycles of pornography is that they, is the guilt, this is Satan's, I like Keller gave some really wonderful uh, uh, language for this. He said, Satan's one-two punch is, the first punch is, it's not that big of a deal, God will forgive you. And then you do it, you fall into the temptation, and then Satan's, the, the big knockout hit is, how could you do that? God will never forgive you for that. It's we diminish 
We diminish the temptation when it's coming at us the strongest, and then we are frozen by guilt and shame when we've crossed that line. And the fact is, is that what Jesus is calling us to is, is to recognize that apart from appropriate affections, if we don't believe that we are loved on our worst days, we will never rise up by the help of the Holy Spirit. Because Satan wants you to live paralyzed by guilt and shame. What Christ wants you to do is recognize what you are and confess it. Repent of it. Bring it into the light so that it no longer has power over you. I think the victorious Christian life is something that actually is meant to be experienced, but it is not experienced by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It's not, you don't stop smoking by thinking about, I'm not going to smoke anymore. You stop smoking by replacing that habit with a new habit. And I think that what Jesus has given us, he's not left us to our own devices, he's given us his Holy Spirit. And so what he is pointing out here is that these sins, whether it's anger, whether it's, whether it's the lustful thought that leads to an adulterous heart, he's saying the answer is to be quick to respond when the Spirit illuminates an issue in your life. And repentance isn't a one-time act. It's a beautiful word that continually brings freedom. It's the, recognize, it's the recognition that life is mixture. And nowhere have I felt the mixture more fully than in, in these first two realities around, around anger and lust. The mixture is there. I don't trust, I don't trust my own interpretation of my intentions. And neither should you of your own. It is a proven fact in cognitive science that you know so much less than you think you do. It's called the halo effect, in case you were wondering. And the halo effect is the ability for your mind to trick you into believing that you have facts about things that you know nothing about. It's a confirmation bias, as Daniel Kahneman calls it. And I think that those technical scientific words are actually very biblical words. The heart is wicked and deceitful above all things and not to be trusted, which is why we need a new heart. And so Jesus is not showing us our adulterous hearts so that we can be like, dang it. Well, I guess that's just the way I am, so I'm just going to keep being that way. No, he wants, he's showing us so that he can rescue us from the disease that can bring death. So recognize the heart impulse before it actually takes, it takes root in action. And when it does take root in action, we go back to mercy and grace. We come to a place where God loves us, which should give us the confidence to repent and begin again, to begin again, to begin again. I like what Karl Barth said, Christians are always beginners because every day we begin afresh in his mercy. I love that. What a beautiful phrase. Our moving on toward maturity is not defined by I now less less. Our moving on toward maturity is I know Jesus more deeply and his victory because I know him. And actually the closer you get to Jesus, the more you'll recognize how much of a murderer and an adulterer you are. In fact, I don't trust anyone that says, I know Jesus because I am no longer those things. I'm like, I don't think you know him yet then because he is light and light exposes darkness and there is darkness in our lives until the other side of eternity. That's reality. That's mixture. And this is why we must function in grace. The urgent call to action. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. 
and your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better to go through the quickness of repentance and even the costly. Listen, every sin has cause and effect. We are forgiven, but that doesn't mean that forgiven sins won't wreak havoc. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, you can bring it out into the light and go through the, the upset of being honest with your, with your friends, with your, with your church community, with your spouse. And you can go through the, 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 the fact that what you have done has put into motion things that can't be stopped. But I promise you, Jesus is saying, is that if you do not deal with it, it actually will bring death and destruction to your whole personhood. And this is why I think so many people live bitter lives, broken lives, is because they would rather hide and allow the corruption in the heart to take root over their whole personhood than come into the light and find real freedom. Freedom is not freedom from a broken world. It is freedom from the need to be free because I know that I am forgiven and I know that I am loved. And our community should actually reflect that to one another because we are the very witnesses to the reality of the gracious Jesus. Love without contingency. A willingness to forgive. A willingness to love. Well, this is what he moves on to. An immovable reality. He takes us to the urgent call of action. It's surgery, not despair. But now, he takes us into the immovable reality. And this speaks to the violence of divorce. And let me just say that as a person who, um, who uh, saw firsthand the impact of divorce in growing up with a mom who was single some of the years and married and divorced, uh, she was married to my dad, divorced when I was one. She was 18 when she had me um, and was 19 by the time she was divorced. And then uh, single, and then I got a new stepdad when I was five, and he was my stepdad till he was eight, and he was physically abusive and terrifying. And then single again until I was in fifth grade, and then she reconnected with her high school sweetheart who was my actual father's best friend in high school um, and they married and then I had another stepdad till my senior year in high school through my senior year in high school and then that marriage ended as well and my mom would be the first to say that no matter what the reasoning no matter the validity even it doesn't come divorce does not come without a cost that it that it hurts that it brings damage. And this is why Jesus says, it has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. And you remember, in, in, uh, if you look at Deuteronomy, there are laws around, around divorce. It was permitted. And in fact, Jesus says in Matthew 19, it was permitted because of the hardness of your heart. That statement isn't any different here. The problem of the heart continues to be at the center of what he is saying. And he says, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality. Now, what, why do people use this as the statement like, oh, unless, if there's sexual immorality, I just got done telling you that there isn't a person alive that doesn't have sexually immoral realities in their life. This is why we are objects of grace. So, so Jesus has already laid down the groundwork that there's nowhere to go. So you can be, you can be a knowing adulterer, 
or he says, or makes her the victim of adultery and unknowing. I, I, I didn't even know, but the fact is, is that there's a play on words here where Jesus is essentially saying, listen, if everyone is, an, is adulterous in the core of their being, which is why we need a savior, and, w- and our freedom is actually from recognizing that reality, then here the point isn't, this is when you can get remarried. He's not like, that would be changing the whole tone of the Sermon on the Mount and turning it into this weird prescriptive moment where all of a sudden he's giving his disciples, probably most of them weren't even married at this point, um, all of a sudden very specific rules. That's not what he's doing here. This, isn't a, this is not a text on when someone should get divorced and when someone should get remarried. What this is a text on is that Divorce or marriage is a covenant established by God. God takes covenants seriously and it breaks his heart when people break those covenants because he knows it breaks people. And anyone here that has been married and divorced and remarried knows the truth of that statement. And what the church needs to be doing is not making people feel bad when all of us are fundamentally broken and at the foot of the cross we are all on an equal playing field it's not our place to say that was valid, that's not valid. Now you're just picking interpreters. You're just picking interpreters. Let the scripture say what it says. And what it, should, what it says is that none of us should celebrate divorce, even if it means freedom from a very difficult situation, a dead covenant or an abusive partner, because it's heartbreaking that there was an abusive partner. It's heartbreaking that a divorce had to come out of that. It's heartbreaking that they didn't know that that was the case. It's heartbreaking when someone commits adultery, but that doesn't mean that it's beyond God's ability to fix. I have seen God rescue marriages that have been unfaithful in powerful ways. And I don't think that the first thing we should ask is, when can I get out? What did uh, G.K. Chesterton in What's Wrong With The World said, if incompatibility was a reason for divorce, I don't see why all men and women wouldn't be divorced because men and women are incompatible by nature. I think there's a profound statement. He's just saying we're different. <laughs> different drives. And there, there are caricatures plenty for both sides. And the fact is, is that Jesus, or God said to Adam and Eve in the garden after the fall that marriage would be a continual source of conflict. That the, that the battle between the sexes would be a continual source of conflict because of a sinful world. God, what Jesus is saying here is that, is that this is all a part of the lustful heart, the broken world, the adulterous realities of our existence. Divorce is the, is the unfortunate natural outcome of those things. And it's not surprising that our country has moved to a place where now even, even those that fall under the umbrella of Orthodox Christianity or evangelicalism, our divorce rate is just as high as the rest of the world. And that's a, that's a tragic statement around the reality of how lightly we take covenants, how we don't understand. Because everything in our existence is built upon what makes me personally happy, we don't know how to combat that unless we have a right understanding of the gospel, that your existence will not find the meaning it is looking for if you are the primary focus of it. Our existence finds meaning when our lives are given away for the good of those around us. And I know firsthand how small my world gets when my eyes are turned inward upon my own wants, my own desires at the expense of others. And it does great damage in marriages, does damage in parenting. No, 
the fact is, is that Jesus here now is dealing with the unfortunate outcome of, of the adultery of the heart not being dealt with. Not being dealt with. I like what it says in Jeremiah 3.11. The Lord said to me, go proclaim this message toward the north. And this is God actually utilizing the imagery of adultery um, and unfaithfulness of the nation of Israel. And he says, return faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am faithful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever, only acknowledge your guilt. You have rebelled against the Lord your God. I think that this is a, a perfect picture that this is not a, a, an escape hatch for those who feel their, their marriage has been violated by whether or not whatever you call uh, unfaithfulness. And, that, and I, I feel that that term, sexual immorality, it is right to actually have a pretty expansive view of what is meant by that statement. It, it, it means all sexual activity outside the confines of one man, one woman in marriage. And so the, the, Jesus is pretty immovable in that. There's, a, there's an understanding. But the point is this, is that if God is willing to come back again and again or receive back the unfaithfulness of us, just as he does with Israel, I will not remain angry. Just, just confess it and return to me. We should hold on to hope. Some of you might be sitting here right now and your marriage is in dire straits. You're on the verge of calling it quits. And I recognize that there are times when the covenant is dead. I've seen it firsthand. Nothing has been more heartbreaking. What, one of the things that makes me reluctant to marry people is how hard it is for me as a pastor to have married so many people and also to know of, of many of them that ended in divorce relatively quickly. And you feel responsible, like if, uh, we didn't do a good job. I mean, we, we didn't, maybe we didn't throw enough. Like, listen, we can't control the activities of one another, but we can love people toward the truth. And we can love each other toward the truth. And if you're in a marriage crisis, before you give up, maybe you can just hear in this message, like, listen, we are, we are all mixture. And, and there's a point often in marriages where it just becomes difficult to look at things through the lens of grace. And maybe you think, that's all I've done. That's all I've done. But there's no change. And, 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 and I'm not saying that you should just roll over and accept bad behavior. Um, to honor Jesus. What I'm saying is that if we don't let others into our brokenness, there isn't even the possibility of, of saving that which might be savable, to bring healing to that which I think there is healing for. Um, and I just want you to know, if you've gone through a divorce, I want you to know that nothing that you can do, nothing can change God's love for you. Nothing. And if you've been remarried, you're not sitting in a constant state of adultery, even if, that, even if your divorce was outside of the, outside of the realm of, uh, of what we have explicitly stated by Jesus. Because the fact is, is, that, is that we're all adulterers and we cannot say grace is good for this, but it's not good for this. What the cross does is it diminishes those categories. It doesn't leave us feeling all right with continuing in a life of brokenness. No, our, su our, our success, our victory is actually through recognizing that without Jesus we're helpless. And the beauty of the gospel is found in the very one that is making the command is also the one that offers his help. He says, I have spoken these things to you that you may have joy and that my joy may remain in you.
When he was asked, what must we do to do the work of God? He said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. I always say, I don't take the world or myself very seriously, but I take Jesus and grace really seriously. The cross must be our center. Our interpretation of these texts must be through the cross. And the fact is, is that Jesus is here to tell us that disciples are nothing more than evil people who have been forgiven and accepted that forgiveness. The disciples are murderers who have been forgiven and adulterers who have been forgiven. But it's not just they continue in those realities. It's that those realities are there and they are aware of it, which is the key to their victory over it because they know that they have a helper who has not left us to our own devices, but he has given us his Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us, to help us to recognize those patterns in our lives that we can actually find final freedom and victory over the sexual immorality, over the anger, that we can actually find forgiveness and be able to move on when we've collapsed and failed miserably in our relationships. Nobody walks away from a divorce unscathed. It hurts, and there may be, it may not be equal in, in cause of the divorce, but the fact is, is that all of us bring a brokenness to every relationship. And so I just want to encourage you, the good news is that Jesus understands that, and the gospel's down to earth. This is why I love that idea that these are great evangelistic tools, because they push us to a place of helplessness where we cry out, Jesus, help me. I'm lost without you. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gospel and its ability to bring transformation to our lives. And I know that these are difficult words that cause us to reflect on our own ways in which we are unfaithful to you, in which ways we can be unfaithful to one another. Lord, the, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, our desires are often so twisted up that we take what is good and we turn it into something that you never intended it to be. Something that was given as a gift of life can quickly become a source of death. And I pray for sexual purity in our, in our church. Lord, that we would not believe the lie of, of, of the enemy, that our satisfaction and our greatest happiness is found in the fulfillment of our physical senses but that our greatest satisfaction is discovered in a restoration of relationship with you and with one another. I pray that this would be a church that people would feel safe to confess, to come into the light and to experience the freedom that only your gospel can offer. And so we confess our need for you and I just pray for those trapped in sexual sin, Lord, I just pray for, I pray for freedom. I pray for the recognition, their willingness to recognize problems where there are problems, the willingness to confess it not only to you but to someone else, that they would begin to find power and victory over patterns that have been damaging. I pray over the marriages of this church for those that are struggling, those that are hurting, those that are living in a private hell because they're embarrassed or too scared to invite others in. I pray that they would find the confidence to ask for help. And I pray that, Lord, you would give them hope in the midst of what might feel like a hopeless situation. Jesus, you are the wounded healer. 
And I thank you that none of these things take you by surprise. It's the whole reason you came. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we think we can improve upon what only you can accomplish. And so we just surrender to you. And thank you that we can trust in the help that you provide. It's in your name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Hey friends, this is Russ Lacey, one of the pastors here at Door of Hope Southeast. Thanks for listening to this teaching. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and would never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help our church as we seek to point people to Jesus and minister here in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your prayers and financial support. Just head over to dooroftheopedx.org and click Give from the menu bar. May God bless you.